brought to you by Soul Fire Productions. Hello and welcome to Mother the Mother. I am McLean McGowan. This podcast is an offering for all women to gather energetically, sister to sister, mother to mother, to co-create a sacred space for healing, educating, and sharing as we journey through motherhood and womanhood. It is such an incredibly powerful moment in time to be a woman, and I thank you for showing up on behalf of yourself and for all of the women in your lives, past, present, and future, to honor our matriarchal lines, all who came before, and all who will come after. Jema. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm your host, McLean McGowan. Thank you for showing up in honor of yourself and as part of this online community as we support one another through education and sharing our own journeys as women and mothers. It truly is medicine for us all to be and coexist and learn from one another. We are actually creating the village for ourselves and each other. So I thank you so very much for showing up and being here with me today. As I drew a card this morning, it was actually from my daughter's unicorn deck. We're big unicorn people over here. And it was a beautiful card pull detailing, trusting my own body, trusting my own flow and trusting where I am right now. And it was the perfect pull for me today because as I am building my business and building my career and changing the ways in which I want to be showing up in work, but also as a mother and as a wife and as a woman during this portal of change, it's so important to remember to trust my own journey, to trust the timing, to trust the divine timing as it all rolls out. And I always come back to that, trusting the flow, trusting nature and the natural flow of all things. And I was talking all about Ayurveda with my guest, Heather Grish, who wrote this incredible book called The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility. I am devouring it. I'm underlining almost every page of it. It's so important for all of us to read this book, honestly, wherever you fall, especially if you are trying to conceive. But even beyond that, it's really learning to come back to our true selves, to learn the patterns of our own bodies, because that is truly sovereignty and self-sovereignty, knowing what our body needs, what our body wants and why. So we went pretty long. Ayurveda, as you know, if you know about Ayurveda, if you don't know about Ayurveda, it is a ancient science. It has been around for thousands of years. It is time tested. It is nuanced. It is vast. So we could literally talk about it for years on end. Um, so we went we went deep and we did a long episode. So this will be a very brief intro. If you are having issues with conceiving, if you've had a long drawn out fertility issue and chapter of your life, in our show notes, please find her, reach out to her, and grab this book. It is something I'm going to be recommending to every woman I know trying to conceive and just every woman trying to know her body better and get her cycle back on track and her food back on track and her spirituality, emotional, everything part of her body back on track. Um, again, it's called the Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility. And it was a true honor to sit down with her. She is a beacon of light, so smart, so knowledgeable, funny, and truthful, which I always, above all else, really honor 
honor honesty and so appreciate that and other women. So I hope you enjoy the listen. Sending love out to all of you. Jay Ma. Hi, Heather. Hi, McLean. Thank you so much for being here today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for bringing me on to your show. So excited. So I'm reading your book, The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, A Natural Approach to Getting Pregnant. And literally, I'm almost underlining every page. And I've been really weepy. <laughs> oh, wow. Reading it, which is, I'm not a crier. And so last last moon cycle when I got your book and started reading it, I was like, oh, I'm on my moon. Like the first couple of days, I'm just feeling really emo. And then as I continue to read it, I, it's just really resonating with me. And um, even, I just want to read your, the, what's my, my I'm still postpartum brain. Dedication. Dedication. Dedic- Thank you. Um, if I can read it, if that's cool. It says, to my son, Gabriel came to me in a sleeping dream and has made my life a waking dream. And to all the lovers and all the mothers for staying wild. I mean, that just gives me chills. You're a beautiful writer. Oh. And I mean, truly, I'm not just saying that. I'm I'm very picky about the things I read, especially now with two kids, because I don't read like I used to. But I have not been able to put this down. And I also feel like it's something you can read certain chapters and then come back and jump back in. So for any of you moms or moms to be that have a you know little bits of time now. It's a great read. Um, Literally, I'm almost underlining every page I've read and just taking like copious notes. And so much of it, which I really appreciate since I do know a lot about Ayurveda, it's simple, yet the way that you present it is so real and digestible. Have you been a writer a long time? Has this been a part of your life journey? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I started writing... I've always written my whole life, just in private. (laughs) And actually part of my process of writing this book was I had been writing for a few years in the process leading up to me getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. So that whole journey that I went on, because I was, you know, my late, I was almost 40 when I had my kid. And so I was a a late bloomer mother. (laughs) And so because of that, there was a lot of just stuff that went into it for me. And I did a lot of processing. It was, it just really felt like I was preparing for this big, huge life change. And I was writing about the sort of metamorphosis I was going to, that I was going through as I felt like I was becoming ready to be receptive to motherhood. And I had been writing for years. And then after I had my kid, I was like, I want to write a book. I'm home with him. I decided to be home with him, but I don't, I don't really want to be home, you know, full time. I still want to do some stuff and keep my keep my passions moving out, you know, outside of my kid because at some point he's going to grow up and go to college. So I've got to maintain, you know, my own passions and stuff. So I hired, I think like 12 hours. My friend just asked me this the other day. She's like, how did you write a book right after you had a kid? I said, well, I hired 12 hours of babysitting a week and sat in a coffee shop, you know, back when you could do that. So the the writing part, I was always doing it, journaling, storing stuff on my computer as my own way of processing things as I was learning. I was in Ayurveda school also at that time that I was going through all that stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, so it just kind of all came together afterwards. I went into my writing that I'd already done and I said, what am I writing about? Because it was very bottom up. I didn't know. I just sort of write and journal and then I go back in and I say, try to make sense of it. 
And that's what I did. And I said, oh, I'm writing a book about how to get pregnant naturally. Hmm. It's so beautiful. I mean, I just, this is going to be my new shower gift for everyone. And I just want to read a couple of things that I've underlined in the very beginning that I just think are so beautiful. And the thing that I really love, because Ayurveda is such a massive topic. I mean, it could be just a life's work podcast, you know, every day for hours and hours. So this will just be the tip of the iceberg. But for those that want to delve deeper, it's it's not just about getting pregnant. It's coming back into your own body and really knowing your body as well, which I think is so beautiful. And one thing that I just wanted to share right now, it says, it turns out that what we want isn't nearly as important as what happens. This is a difficult pill for a woman with a biological clock to swallow. However, it's not as if you should just say it's all out of your control. So much is within, so much is within your power. This is the inspiration of this book. Focus on what you can control and leave the rest up to nature. If you've picked up this book because you're considering becoming a mother, then welcome to the most insane ride of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And then I even love, I mean, this is, I just get your personality just reading this, which I love just the total transparency and honesty. If I haven't told you what I think is the worst part of this book, it offers no guarantee that you can have children even if you want them. It might not be in the cards for you. Just because you are reading this book doesn't mean you will definitely be able to have kids. It doesn't happen for everyone. The prize you are seeking isn't always the one you get at the end of your journey. However, there's always a prize, and in time, only you will find out what that is. You simply have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. It's so weird to hear my own words. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) And anyway, I I just I could read the quotes on and on and on. I'm very I'm seriously very moved by this book. So as we were talking before hitting record, there's so much to cover, but please share if you feel like a little bit about what drew you into Ayurveda and then your own journey getting pregnant and your journey postpartum. Yeah. Okay. So I never grew up with Ayurveda in my life. You know, I found out about it in my thirties after I had started teaching yoga and studying yoga therapy. And that is how I got introduced to it. And the first day I learned about it, I said, what is that? And why doesn't anybody know about it? <laughs> it <just laughs> made, like, to give you sort of perspective where I was in my life at the time, I was in my early to mid 30s. So I was like around 32. I had just gotten divorced, I think a year before. And I was like, oh my gosh, I keep having all these relationships and I, I don't know if I want to be a mother. And, you know, time is sort of uh, slipping away, I sort of went through like a, I guess, a midlife crisis in my entire 30s. And part of that was studying yoga, learning about Ayurveda. And I don't really know exactly what drew me to it. And maybe that's why I love it so much because the medical texts themselves are written in poems. And yeah, yeah, and you don't really study those right away because they're, you know, written in Sanskrit and then they have to be transliterated into something that sort of looks like English and that could then be understood by somebody who could understand the sounds of English. Um, You know, so you don't go that deep that fast with Ayurveda, but I would say there it brings because those texts are written in poems it brings this um there's a little bit of a a, i don't want to say it's not intellectual because it is intellectual but there's it taps into a different dimension 
in your being, the same dimension that poetry taps into. I don't know what you want to call that, but maybe it's your heart. Maybe it's your spirit. Maybe it's your emotional brain. Uh, it, it taps into that more than, and it helped me tap into that more. So the first day I learned about it, I remember just, I think someone taught us about the doshas, which you know, it's just the sort of the imbalances and the biological humors that, that people can get that caught that are part of the causes of disease. And I think after I heard this woman speak all day on it, I just drove to the beach and said, I need to watch waves. I just need to watch waves. I don't know why I just need to watch them. (laughs) And I like the other thing about where I was in my life, I was head of product development for a health insurance company. So I was very much involved in like the mainstream healthcare system. I was involved in, you know, setting up Obamacare in a couple of different states. So I was really involved in that. Wow. But I always knew that there was this other part of me that was just completely not tapped into that I wanted to find again that I somehow felt I had lost as an adult uh, woman. And that's really what Ayurveda did for me. And I remember even applying to Ayurveda school. I remember going like, they were like, why do you want to go to Ayurveda school? And I said, well, I think it's going to make me be a better writer. <laughs> like what a random response, wow. you know? Yeah. So for me, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm rational. My partner's a, a biomedical, a PhD in biomedical science. I can play with people who are, you know, have those kinds of brains, but things don't always make sense to me at the time when I do them. They sort of make sense to me later. And then what was your experience getting pregnant? Oh, well, I think I mentioned to you, you know, briefly beforehand that I had tried to get pregnant in my early thirties, very briefly before I had gotten divorced. So, you know, I kind of went through that whole midlife crisis thing and I did that whole pee on the ovulation strip, you know, check to see if you're ovulating, blah, 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 you know everything that you think you're supposed to do to try to get pregnant that you hear everybody say you're supposed to do. And I felt a lot of resistance in myself and I was young and I had a great job and like my life conditions on the outside probably looked like they were perfect. I just got married, but something inside of me just felt very resistant to it Mm -hmm. and I could feel it. And then I kind of just had this freak out one day and ended up leaving the country to go take a yoga teacher training and then the rest is history. But later, so I, I kind of gave up trying to get pregnant for many years and then fast forward to my late thirties. So that was going down early thirties, fast forward to my late thirties. After I studied Ayurveda, I spent many, I spent several years sort of regulating my own menstrual cycles because they were not they were, you know, they were troublesome, I would say. There were clearly some imbalances going on. So I worked with a healer to do that. A lot of cleansing I had to do. Started doing a lot of fasting. Hmm. And uh, yeah, for me, the conception phase, the, the hardest part was getting my partner to be ready to have a child. He was like, not ready. But the actual, I just spent the time focusing on how to get myself as healthy as possible. That was my goal because I was like, here's what I have to bring to the table. My body, my health, my way of being in the world, my, you know, my capacity to be here for another child. Like that's what I have to bring to the table. 
And I just focused on that and um, my happiness and my vitality, everything. And when he's ready, if he's ready, and if he's not, maybe I, I'm going to find a new partner. <laughs> I was sort of like giving up on him actually because he was not quite ready. But that was the most frustrating part for me when he actually decided that he wanted to have a child, we got pregnant on the first try. And that is bizarre and not, I know, probably fun for a lot of people to hear who took a long time to get pregnant. But like I said, I just spent my time focusing on how can I get my body in the mo in the healthy state, in a receptive state that is in the best position to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I did similarly. And it's it's such a beautiful journey just that even if you don't become pregnant just learning our own bodies you know which is so said time and time again in this book it really comes back to that because why would you want to be this like why would a soul kind of i mean that this isn't necessarily from your book but i always think why would a soul want to come into the body if it doesn't feel healthy and comfortable and holistic right so it's like really learning your body learning your fluids learning your period learning all of it and what really makes you you and then what do you need to work on and release and let go of? So that's what I love about Ayurveda. It's just an ongoing journey of thyself. It's yeah, so and it's beautiful. and it's so important to do that because everything grows from the moment of conception. Everything grows. So if you have a little tumor in your body somewhere and you get pregnant and you got growth hormones in your body, uh, that tumor is going to get bigger. You know, I think that's a very tangible example of why it's it's important to be healthy before you conceive, uh, because many imbalances that exist in your body can actually get worse yeah. when you're pregnant. And so, you know, it's just I, within our best interest to take care of ourselves before we conceive. Totally. This is another quote I just saw again that touches on this: "Conception involves two people in the universe." And all three have to be on board for it to occur. And I love that because it is two people being ready and open and then the magic of it, right? It's all a miracle, really. Yeah. It's funny that you bring that up because I was having this thought today about, I think earlier in my life, I was, well, I was raised Catholic. And then in my 20s, I became this kind of hardcore scientist from college because I had studied uh, psychology and I had this head of my sort of mentor in college was all about proving that psychology was a hard science. And so I kind of got a little science nerdy about things and very, I would say, agnostic, bordering atheist, sort of in terms of a mindset. And then something happened to me through practicing yoga where I softened in my, I guess, own categorization of things <laughs> in the world. And started to really notice that, and I think anyone who's had a child has experienced this sense that there is something bigger than us at play here that we don't always understand. And if you want to call it God, or you want to call it nature, or you want to call it the unknown or whatever. And I remember someone asking me on a plane when I was in my 20s, I was traveling for work. And this guy and I were having this really in-depth conversation and he asked me if I was religious. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, but I don't understand. I really like you. You seem like a really nice person. Hmm. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. <laughs> and I realized that 
we oftentimes get into this thing where um, we want to segment the world by us and the other person and the thing that's bigger than us. And there's all those things that are there. We could, and we, we, as long as we're looking at everything as separate and not interconnected, that's where we could start pointing fingers at things and blaming. And I think we get to that place more of blaming when that separation occurs uh, as, as humans. And so once we come back to that place where we start to see how, okay, you pull this string over here, then everything over there moves. Or if he does this, then that makes me want to do that. And if I do this, that makes him want to do that. The sort of interconnectedness of everything. And then, oh, guess what? When, when it's raining outside, we both are more te- have more of a tendency to do this. So I've, Ayurveda, I think, brought me back and probably that and yoga brought me back to this more interconnected way of being. Mm-hmm. And then how was your pregnancy? Yeah, that was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I was teaching yoga at the time when I conceived and I had a six year daily meditation practice before I conceived my what child. What kind of meditation? I don't really know what to call it. I would say it was a mix of uh, insight meditation and a mix of uh, maybe some body awareness type stuff. And uh, I've never had, I've kind of come to my own form of meditation in time, Uh, but I started with insight meditation and uh, that had one effect on me. And then later I got more focused in my meditations. And I think that's an important point, sorry to interrupt, but just, I think now there's so many different thoughts and lineages and there's something really powerful about making your own practice that totally comes back to that self-sovereignty. And that's something I've really been playing with really my whole life, but a lot in the past 10 years of being attracted and pulled to the dogma and then rebelling against the dogma and then really finding my own practice that feels good in my own mind and body. And I think that also plays into just loving and accepting your body and your journey as a woman. Yeah. And meditation can actually be not great for some people. It can continue to reinforce anxiety in people. It can, you know, because all of a sudden you sit down, you realize your mind's going all over the place as minds do. And sometimes the minds are not doing that as much, you know, as you do that in time, you notice that your mind can have different qualities to it. I think that the methods, I love that idea of like rebelling against the the practices, because uh, that's, you know, that is a, a wonderful thing. <laughs> and it's also a wonderful thing when, when you find that you're uh, maybe, mm, you've gone on a bad tangent and you need a little, you know, a little nudge back to, to a, a state of, of uh, surrender. But you asked me about my pregnancy and it was, uh, it was not fun because I was nauseous every day, all day, my entire pregnancy. I was almost the same. It's, that's like a form of living hell. <laughs> and that was what killed my meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty, uh, pretty big for me, you know, as you can imagine, going and meditating. Literally, I probably skipped one or two days in six years. Wow of a 30 minute meditation. And 
So I just called up all my friends who owned yoga studios and I said, I can't sit still and I can't feel my body because I'm nauseous. Can you please just like whenever you need a class subbed, just keep me busy. Like I can't feel my body. I just had to be focusing on somebody else during my pregnancy. It was really weird. And um, that's, that's how it went for me. Yeah. Other than that, it was great. I mean, I didn't have any other issues. I'm, um, he, my child, I had to get induced when he was uh, born. He was, a. Uh, my body was not ready to let go of him. And uh, his, his actual birth was, you know, a little bit of stress with the uh, heart rate dropping and things like that. But yeah, I mean, all things considered being 40 years old I, and, you know, the nausea was not fun, but I would say all things went fairly well. Is there anything that you can attribute that nausea to? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I've talked to all my teachers. I talked to my healer, you know, I was like, the way that it was explained to me is like, sometimes there's just certain things you can't control. Uh, and my partner is not a fan of using herbs very much. And in fact, yeah, he's a, he's a PhD in biomedical science. He's a pharmacology background. He doesn't, he's not a big fan of taking much of anything, uh, let alone herbs that don't have a lot of science behind them, even though they have, you know, 3000 years of usage in a country. But, you know, so I, I respected that because, you know, this child is his too. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we worked through that. Um, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't take any herbs during the pregnancy and I certainly, you know, it was really just about where to keep my drishti, where to keep my focus and my focus had to be kept outside of me during my pregnancy. That was what I felt worked and uh, moving around was what, was what really helped. And, um, you know, does that mean that, you know, every child, uh, your mother's body is the environment for the baby, right? So, we, we think it's, we all know that I'm assuming it's mostly moms who listen to this podcast and, you know, you've, we've all had that experience of our kid moving around when we're still and our kid being still when we're moving. So we can't really always understand exactly what is necessary for the child uh, with our conscious minds. We just have to sort of like feel it out. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe my kid needed me to move around a lot. Maybe my kid needed me to stay busy and externally focused in order for my internal environment to sort of shift into a certain state in order for him to be well. I mean, yeah, no, but it, I never was able to sort of figure out. I mean, if I look at it from an Ayurvedic perspective, the nausea response is typically one of pitta or kapha. And it's a reversal of a panavayu, which is uh, the downward moving force of gravity. So it makes sense that if you've got a baby that's blocking your uh, downward moving force because it's sitting in the center of your body on you know your digestive organs and all the channels where things are supposed to move down through, that there could be some pressure in some areas that's placed there um, on those digestive organs. And that, you know, many women experience that later in their pregnancy yeah. because of that. Um, and something happened for me where that just happened earlier. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how was your postpartum healing? Yeah, I, I think it could have been better. I really do. And I didn't line up much support. I actually asked myself before I had my child, I said, what kind of help do I feel I need the most? And I knew how to do all the body treatments, all the you know postpartum body treatments on myself. I decided to do them on myself. Mm-hmm. And I said, I really just need somebody to come over and clean my house. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, for me, that was like the support that I lined up. And mainly that was, I would say me going, okay, I have, if I want to spend X amount of money on support, I would have dished out, I would have dished out way more money on postpartum support. If I had known on someone like you, you know, I would have definitely, if I knew then what I know now that I would have been through, I definitely would have. Now, luckily I had, uh, I have a really amazing mother-in-law who unfortunately doesn't live near me, who lives closer to you down in Southern California. And I live in Northern California. So I would go and visit her and stay for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time uh, with, you know, either with or without my partner, cause he was working a lot and he was actually working out of town a lot. So there were a lot of times I was alone mm-hmm. right after I had my child and my, I'd, yeah, it was really super hard. So I would go and stay with her and she just really took care of me. So, I mean, kept me fed, kept me cared for. And so I would say that's the support that I had mostly. And I, my partner was also, you know, when he was there, he was unfortunately traveling a lot but he was also great. Um, but I would have, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I would have hired more postpartum support. Same. Yep. <laughs> and I think mainly it's because, uh, it sneaks up on you. Yeah. The, you know, for me, there was a point around six months postpartum where I was like, all my friends are going, how are you doing this? You know, he's out of town all the time. You're with the baby alone a couple nights a week you know, all day and all night. And how do you, how do you deal with that? And I had amazing friends. I made, you know, friends with a lot of other moms and I, my friends would have me over their house for dinner all the time. You know, I made it work and I didn't feel put out cause I just felt like I was doing what I had to do. But at some point I got so depleted. I looked at my fingernails and I was like, oh my gosh, I could see that they had changed so much and I, I was really physically depleted and emotionally depleted. And I, you know, got pretty dark one day and then I called my partner up. I was like, you need to come home right now. And this can't continue. Yeah. Yep. And then I made a lot of shifts and that's actually right when I started writing my book. Part of that, part of that was getting help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just hearing you talk about that, I viscerally feel it because I had that day about six months where I was like, because I wasn't sleeping at all. I didn't know my baby was tongue tie, lip tie, you know, and I wasn't sleeping. And I just had that day where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. And I think we need to hear that and know that we all feel that way sometime or the other because it is so isolating. We're in our homes doing it and we don't notice we don't really know, especially if it's first time mom, you don't know better. You just think this is what it is to have a new baby. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, all this work is just so important. So when, at what point did you kind of feel like you came back into your own body? Like 
was there like a two-year mark or a three-year mark? Or when, when did you find yourself being like, ah, okay, I'm, I'm kind of back? It would happen in stages. So I, I would always make sure I was, I luckily didn't have to pump that much because I made the decision to mostly stay home with my kid, except for, you know, going to the coffee shop for a certain amount of hours every week so I could write. And I also wanted to go out for a walk every day or something like that. And so I always made sure I had a bottle of breast milk that I had pumped in the house so that I could just escape for a couple hours or an hour even to go for a walk. And I'd go out on these walks and I would say, okay, I think I'm starting to feel like myself again. And then I'd go on a walk, you know, a couple of days later and I'd say, nope, this feels a little bit more like myself. And every time I went on one of these walks by myself, felt like more and more coming back to myself. And I don't, I would say um, fully myself, you know, I breastfed till he was 19 months. So you're not yourself when you're breastfeeding either, I think. And obviously you're like never the same again after you have your child, your whole way of being in your body is different. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a permanent change, uh, a lot of it. But I would say maybe around two years for me was that sense that, okay, this is me now. This is my, my you know, child. We're not sharing cells as much anymore, even though his cells are in me permanently and mine are in his permanently. We're not sharing new ones uh, anymore. And I have my own sort of egoic definition back. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah, probably two years. It's so interesting. I, in the exact same way, it's all with both my kids, it was two years. It's almost this like deep exhale, like, oh, I'm landing back. It's, um, it's a pivotal time. Yeah. So coming back into your own book, based on what you were drawn to write about, you really draw out four main fertility factors, the seed season, field, and water. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because clearly we have a real big issue with fertility problems right now. I mean, I see it in so many of my clients, 30-year-olds, 20-something-year-olds doing IVF, trying for years to get pregnant. And even you know, 30 years ago, that wasn't happening. And can you speak a little bit about why you think that is and how you come to that through Ayurveda to help heal that. Yeah. It's funny. I was just watching the movie Wally with my kid. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh my gosh. I was watching it this morning and it's one of my favorite movies. And this, you know, this little robot is left on earth and his job is to pick up all the trash on earth and sort of squish it and make little like bricks out of it. And then he builds these little structures out of these bricks that are made of trash and they're all like giant buildings and cities made of, of uh, trash. Mm-hmm. And the humans meanwhile have left earth because they left on this spaceship because it became uninhabitable because there was so much trash. Mm-hmm. And these humans all went out into space and this little, you know, robot still there doing his job because they're trying to clean up earth. So maybe someday they could come back and live there and it could be habitable for life again. And this other little like robot comes down. Anyway, there's this whole story about they find a plant that's living on earth when they thought everything was dead and how everything changes when they find this one little plant 
alive. And it just becomes this story of rescuing and saving the plant. And it's for humans that this is happening. And I, it's related to the four fertility factors because the four fertility factors is a gardening or a sort of agricultural references for fertility. And this idea that your body, the mother's body, plus some <laughs> you know, environmental considerations, including the partner and all the things that are within the mother's sphere, that these are all, uh, there's a seed right? There's a seed, there's mom's egg and daddy's sperm. And those are the seeds. And you plant those seeds. You're going to plant them. When are you going to plant them? Well, you're going to plant them when the time is right. So when is the time is right? That's the second fertility factor, the season. Mm -hmm. And the season, literally the, the word in Sanskrit is ritukala, which is, uh, means sort of like the, um, the time of the month or the time of the year or the, the, the season um, has to do with, you know, the phases of the moon and things like that. So when the woman's ovulating, right, that's the, the right time or in the right time of her life, not when she's, you know, 60, right. you know, or, you know, what's that right time? Or maybe there's even that sort of mysterious element associated with that, you know, the right time. Okay, so we've got the seed and then we've got the season. And then the third fertility factor is the field. And that's the mother's uterus going out from the center because the uterus is where the baby makes the pilgrimage to on earth through the mom's uterus. And uh, you've got the uterus and then everything in that field goes out from there. The mommy's body, the dad and his health and uh, the environment that they live in, assuming they're together and, you know, the work that they do and the people they hang out with and the food that they're eating and the soil that that's grown in and all the things associated with that and the air that they're breathing is all part of the field. So we've got seed, season, and field. And then the fourth one is the water. So the water, you got to, you know, what happens? We've all grown a seed, you know, at some point, even if it was only in, you know, sixth grade seventh grade biology class or whatever, a pea, we all grew a pea in class. So you, you know, you plant the seed in the soil and the soil has got to be the right kind of soil for that particular seed. Cause you're not going to plant, you know, cactus in the same soil that you plant broccoli and they just don't take the same soil. They don't need the same density, the same ability to retain water. They're, they're different. So we know that then we have to water it and we, we don't, you know, Every, everything also needs different kinds of watering. So every plant you have in your house, you could try to water them all once a week, but maybe some of them actually need to be watered twice a week. And some of them only need to be watered once every other week. So every organism or every person or every plant needs something different. And that's contextual based on sort of their nature, but also what the environmental considerations are. And that's the, that's the premise behind uh, cultivating the body in a way that is uh, creating the conditions for conception to take place in mm -hmm. and creating that healthy soil. And then you have that. So that's like in the, the main pillars. And then you also have the five elements that then feed into that as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So the five elements are a, a staple, you know, core philosophy of Ayurveda. And this comes, you know, from the Vedic traditions from India and it's metaphysical in nature and sort of that got turned into the, the basis of the medical system of Ayurveda. So the five elements are similar. Also, if anybody's familiar with Chinese medicine, mm -hmm. it's a similar idea, you know, and then now we have in our culture, we have the periodic table of elements, which has way more elements on it, but you could start to, I would say, segment even the periodic table of elements by these five elements that they have maybe more of certain ones in them. So it's a real easy, simple way to understand everything that is in nature. And I'll explain what those are. And I'll start with the most tangible. And the most tangible element is the earth element. And that is, uh, you know, it's the soil outside, anything physical, our bodies have earth element, you know, more so than like the wind. So that's the earth element. And then we have water is one of the elements. And then we have fire is one of the elements. So those are three. And then the fourth element is air. So it looks at wind. Ayurveda looks at wind and movement as an actual element, even though you can't see it. I mean, you can look out the window. I'm looking out my window right now. I see this tree barely moving. It's got like a little bit of wind moving it. I can't see the wind though. Mm -hmm. I can just see what it's moving. And then even more esoteric and difficult to perceive is the fifth element, which is space. And that's, you know, the container that we're in. That's the, it's a thing. Space is a thing mm -hmm. in Ayurveda. And in that sense, it sort of makes it almost a little bit like physics. <laughs> yeah. um, that it really does go from, or maybe even quantum physics, from this really super intangible thing to something that is very tangible, which is earth. And then the, the things in the middle, like the water and the fire, which fire transforms things and its whole job is to transform. And water's whole job is to like lubricate and mix things up and be a container for mixture to happen within. So all these elements come into play and we, and they sort of come into the doshas, um, which some people may have heard of in that certain doshas, certain types of imbalances in your body will actually have more of a earth element to them or more of a water element to them or more of a fire element to them or combinations of those, or they may have more of an air and space element to them. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost, it's like opposites, right? So if you have one imbalance, you treat by doing the opposite. So say I'm really vata imbalanced and dry, brittle, then I'm going to go to more like oily, liquidy, um, denser fats, et cetera, to balance that out. So it's really knowing your, that's why knowing your body and all your fluids and your sleeping and your digestion and constipated, you have diarrhea, what's everything doing and really learn to pay attention to those things. So then you know how to treat yourself basically. Exactly. And certainly, I mean, Ayurveda is a, a medical system so that it can get you know, more complicated. But I think the way that we've been trying to teach people Ayurveda, at least in the United States, is for self-care, you know, for more self-care. And I think the reason that's happening more is that we're ready for it. We're, yeah. we're really ready. We've, especially the yogis and the people who have a lot of body awareness are really ready for Ayurveda. Everyone has a sense that 
they're not satisfied with the medical system the way it is. And that, you know, like I even just took my kid to the, have his ear looked at the other day. And I feel like I'm asking more questions and having more observations about the tissues than the doctor is. And I'm pointing things out to the doctor that the doctor is missing. And it's like there, the awareness has reached a level with some people where we can detect things earlier than a sort of full-blown manifested disease. Mm -hmm. And that's what Ayurveda really allows people to understand because we don't have words for this in our language. We don't have uh, any understanding of the earlier stages of disease and we can feel them. We can feel them happening, but we don't have a paradigm to understand them in using the words. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that Ayurveda can give to moms, to any, any human. But, you know, for me as a person who was thinking about having a child and studying this, you know, when your kid's born, they can't talk to you. You have to use your powers of observation. Mm-hmm. You just have to look and see, well, is he, is he peeing? Is he pooping? Is he sleeping? Is he crying? Why is he crying? Uh, you know, oh, that stomach's making that noise. And, uh, you know, what is, why does the skin look like that? And we have to use our powers of observation to understand what's happening with the child because the child can't tell us how they feel using words. And I think for me, I'm really happy I learned about Ayurveda before becoming a mom, because I think if I didn't, I would be so stuck in this, uh, the way that we've labeled health as, I I think I'd miss a lot, actually. And I think that, um, yeah, I just think I'd miss a lot if I didn't study Ayurveda. And something I was reading in your book this morning is you know, how we view our bodies and our immune systems in the Western world is very ass backwards, in my opinion. And, um, you know, at the, at looking at it as this invader is going to come in and wreck me, whereas in Ayurveda, it's also your body's doing these amazing, miraculous um, things, you know, whether it's mucus or diarrhea or vomiting or all these things that we kind of label as negative or we're sick. It's actually beautiful. It's, it's like a cleanse. It's yeah, helping. It's cleanse. And it's not just this like invader coming. It's this perfect system if we give our bodies the chance. And that's what I love about Ayurveda so much is it's this web, like you were talking about earlier, our environment, the foods, the water we're drinking, our emotions, the emotions of the people in our house, the emotions of the people in our homes. What are we watching? What are we listening to? They all play a part in this. And for me as a mom, because I really got into Ayurveda after I had kids, is it's coming back to that self-sovereignty of knowing my own body and how to care for my own body without having to ask that many other people. And of course, I do ask my Ayurvedic practitioner and my trusted care team, but it really comes back to me knowing my body because I'm the best knowledge. And same with my kids. I know better than anyone else, my kids, their emotional state, their physical state, what their bodies are telling me. And so like dialing into that is just such a gift to learn this ancient, ancient medicine. 
It is. Although with my kid, I would say, I don't feel I know his body. I mean, I, I think I'm in a good position to understand it better than anybody else probably, except for things that like, I can't see, Mm -hmm. you know, that I would need a blood test for, right. Or that I would, um, need imaging done on, you know, something, something like that. Yeah. But just like an emotional, like a tantrum-y thing, or it could be just based on the, his digestion or the sleep last night, or did he have a night, you know, just like the basic stuff, but really it just helped me look at things more holistically without so much fear, mm. which is very empowering for me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, the anga or, you know, putting oil on them, if my, especially my oldest one, who's a little bit more sensitive and she has a different makeup based on the way that we started her off as a young baby versus the second one. And um, when she gets starting to get anxiety or restless at night or just having a lot of, you know, vata vata thoughts, I know, oh, I need to put some warm oil on her body and rubber. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. That's really helpful. Yeah. And then also it can, you know, that that's as a, like a treatment measure, but also it can make you, I think it can be helpful on the conditioning as well and sort of getting rid of this we're all programmed that, okay, you have to eat this many vegetables a day, this many mm-hmm. servings of fruit and this much protein and whatever the sort of nutritional guidelines are for uh, the United States. What is it? The I don't know if it's the FDA that puts those out or which body puts those out, but you know, then you get all these moms going, oh, I'm worried that my kid isn't eating enough of this and not, you know, not eating enough of this. And I think you can, we we always try to be perfect. (laughs) And I feel like Ayurveda just kind of like lets you see past some of that stuff and go, well, does my kid actually need a piece of broccoli today? I mean, he had broccoli like three days last week and I don't need to beat myself up over it. Totally. And I I mean, I remember the first time I did Panchakarma and my practitioner, who's also a friend, was like, yeah, you can have some coffee with some sugar in it. I was like, come again? Okay, this is something I can get behind. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Um, because it's really looking at the whole thing. And I love that so much because I do not like routine. And that's something I butt up against with Ayurveda because you know it is based on routine and kind of the same continuity. But I love that it doesn't have to be this and this and this and this and this. It's the overall human. Like what was your intake over the week or the month or the year and really honoring the different seasons of your life too. Yeah. And knowing that like things of a quote unquote healthy diet, which of course we all know is ever evolving for everyone, looks so different for everyone at different stages of your life. You know, what used to really work for me or what I thought worked for me is raw or high fruit or, you know, high raw food diet. That doesn't work for me anymore. Yeah, totally. And also just this idea like that your children may not actually need the same things between them. So if you have more than one kid, one kid might need one thing and another kid might need more of another thing. And if if we get into this mindset of everybody needs to eat the same kind of nutrition in the same way at the same times, then we don't, and we fail to see that the body demands are different, that the energy outputs are different, that the way that each person is metabolizing is different, that 
we we fail and we get it's a lazy way of being because we want it we want one way to just make it easier mm-hmm. or we maybe we want one way because we think it's the right way too that could also be it but what ayurveda teaches you is that there is no right way yeah it is all contextual and you have to see what each person needs like you do with your daughter who you know when she, her vata is out of balance or if my vata was out of balance i'd be doing that or if yours was out of balance and slapping oil all over myself, you know? Yeah, totally. And that I I do think is so important to motherhood, what you just touched on, is honoring each soul's journey. And just because we're their mother doesn't mean that it's our way or the highway. You know, these are beings that we've probably been with in past lifetimes, depending on your belief system, but it can get so challenging to do that because you're like, we got to do bedtime. We got to stay on the routine. We got to do this and this and this. And sometimes I have to kind of telescope out to be like, who am I to actually say all those things or to demand that they eat this or not eat this? And with my oldest, that was really hard in the beginning because I was vegan. And then, you know, I look over and she's eating this massive lamb chop on the bone for my husband. And that's something I had to really honor is her body wants meat. And she'll tell me usually once a week, like, I need a steak, mom. And then I'll try to find the best, healthiest version of that for her. Um, but I had to really detach from my own dogma and know that she knows best what she needs for her body. Yeah. And in fact, when you, when, especially if she's Vata, of course she needs meat more than other people. And when I was pregnant, you know, I was a vegetarian for six years before. So it's kind of in line, the meditation practice and the, and the vegetarianism was in line for me. And then once I got pregnant in the very beginning, I just, I smelled a steak somewhere and I said, I need to eat that. And then I was automatically a meat eater again. And then once all that passed, I realized my own body doesn't need that as much, but my child's body did need that when he was growing inside of me. Mm-hmm. And so that was an adjustment that that I went through and, and the demands of breastfeeding and things like that always change our, our needs as well. Totally. And just allowing yourself to not label yourself, which yeah. we love to do. We love to put ourselves in these little boxes. I think it's also really hard for people who become vegan, for example, for for some other reason other than health, where it's like maybe a concern about the planet and things like that, or yeah, exactly. So the reasons that we have a certain diet, um, they oftentimes are psychological in nature, not based on a physiological need. And I think that's an interesting thing for people to piece apart. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And I think also I've been hearing so much this term intuitive eating, which feels very Ayurvedic to me, of actually listening to your body. And for so many of us, that's wild to just listen to what the needs of our body are. And that's another big tenet of Ayurveda is pee when you need to pee, poop when you need to poop, have your period when you need to have your period. And when you start to pick those things apart, you're like, wow, I ignore those signals so much throughout my day. Yeah. I, I had this experience when I was uh, in high school where I, I sneezed. I was working one day and I sneezed and this kid who I was working with goes, uh, and I did one of those sneezes that was like, where you like try to not make a noise. <laughs> And he goes, oh, so-and-so used to sneeze like that. And I flash back and I was like, oh, that's the girl that died of an aneurysm. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is powerful. And I, that stayed with me. So I, I said, you know what? I probably shouldn't sneeze like that. 
And then when I went to Ayurveda school, I learned why that, you know, that that's one of the, they call it, you were just referring to the Vegas, which are the the urges, the natural urges of the body that should not be stopped when the body sends a signal that they should happen. So sneezing, pooping, peeing, all the ones, yawning, and crying is one of them. Yeah. Crying is even one of them. So vomiting is one of them too. Mm. So just like the body says, hey, I got to do this. You get out of the way. Yeah. I really noticed within myself the yawning one, just how ingrained that is as a Southern woman to not yawn in public or, you know, like do it really meekly. And it's so absurd. I mean, it's just a bodily thing, but I've really been trying to catch myself to not inhibit it. And really when I learned that aspect, when Julie, my practitioner told me that, I was like, oh my God, it's so deep for us women, you know? to starve ourselves, to not eat when we're hungry and then binge with, you know, overeating or emotional eating when we're not hungry. Like it's so backwards that we are just so misaligned with the needs of our bodies. Yeah. And that was the whole idea in the book where I'm like, you know what, sometimes your mind isn't right. And I know that there's all this, you know, we, we, we want to be able to trust our quote unquote intuition, but sometimes the thoughts that are coming up within that intuition are not actually wise ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So I think that the Ayurveda sort of reprograms you to sort of align with the functioning of the body so that you are allowing for the dominant force to to be honored in that time because the physical ramifications of things are, are a bit harder to change than uh, subtle ones. Like your mind is easier to change than your body. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, There's so many things I want to cover. I'm just, one thing I really want to hit on for the people that are listening that have had a real struggle with fertility is, and I know this with my friends that have gone through this for years, is how sex gets almost punitive and divisive between partners. And I love when you go deep into this in the book of doing a sex fast and how that can be important. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So, you know, as a yogi, you know, you you sound like you're a yogi and uh, probably a lot of your listeners are yogis and they're probably familiar, especially if they're a yoga teacher with that word brahmacharya. Yep. So the sort of withholding of the sexual energy and personally, when I learned that word in yoga teacher training 10 years ago, I was like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. I remember I got in sort of like a little thing with my yoga teacher about it too. And, uh, you know, I basically um, learned a lot about fasting in and of itself as a practice, you know, fasting from various things. When I was in Ayurveda school, I did my master's thesis on fasting and it's kind of like in yoga, this um, that word pratyahara, which is like the path toward meditation. You know, when you withdraw your senses inward. Well, pratyahara literally means the withdrawal of the food, and so food, in the ahara is food. So ahara or food in any sense is like a sensory input, and any. Anything that comes in through your senses, including the yummy, delicious food, or including you know the 
the uh, male body part that enters your body, you know, it could be <laughs> a kind of food, right? Sensory input. So the sense of touch, sounds, taste, smells, sight, all of them. So with the sex fasting, yes, of course. I mean, I work with women every day who have been trying to get pregnant for years and how like I literally just had a client say to me yesterday, I want to just be able to enjoy the act of sex without like thinking about it as this means to a goal that I want to attain and or this desire that I have. Whenever you have a desire, it creates, uh, you know, an, well, whenever you have an attachment to a desire, let's just say that we'll do all kinds of things to achieve it. And oftentimes we will not listen to our reason and we will sabotage things. We will do all kinds of weird things once we are locked in on a goal. And when it comes to having a baby, naturally we shall say, because it's different once you do it with down the medical path, but when you want to go down the sort of mysterious primal path, that the more fun path, right? When you want to go down that path, it's basically more about um, not being so focused on that goal of having a baby or that goal of getting pregnant. It's more about being focused on the act of sex itself because that is all you need to focus on in order to have a baby because just being totally present with that experience. And that experience is what brings you to conceiving naturally. And when we get our focus too far forward from that event, it always reminds me of like, I used to play softball and I, every time I made an error in getting a ball, like the ball would be coming to me and I'd, I'd be thinking about throwing it before I'd actually field the ball. And so whenever I got myself into thinking that step ahead and not completing the step that I was in, which was fielding the ball first or catching the ball first before throwing it, it just screws everything up. It's like, well, oh, I lost my focus on this thing that I was supposed to do. So what fasting does in general, whether you're fasting from food or you're fasting from sex, is that it develops a greater sense of awareness of the act of having sex or the act of eating or whatever you're fasting from, whether it's an activity or a food, and it develops a greater sense of relish for it and you appreciate it more. And so the other thing that it does for, for people is that it is a form of meditation. You get, it's a form of pratyahara. You are cutting off your sensory inputs so that you can focus within. Wow. And when you focus within, you might actually find some things that surprise you. Uh, you don't know what you're going to find. You know, if you've been so locked externally on something in the future or some goal that you have, if you've been locked in on that for so long, you know, like for me as an example, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that all women who can't get pregnant you know, don't really want a baby or whatever. But like for me, when I couldn't get pregnant in my 30s, when that wasn't working, I was not really like, I was, I was somewhere else mm -hmm. when that was happening. Uh, when I really 
clued into what was going on in my body, I could feel a gripping. I could feel something in my body saying, no, 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 this is not right the way this is happening. Something's not right or you're not ready or you're not receptive or whatever. So um, if I didn't take the time to really uh, be by myself and study my body without a partner's influence on it, then I may not understand my own signals for things as much. And that could be like knowing when you feel aroused naturally or knowing just your body ovulating without you having sex. What is that like? Um, what, what do you, I think a lot of it has to do with also getting to know your menstrual cycles and your senses and how your senses change throughout the month even. Mm-hmm. And uh, that whole thing about women get so upset right before they get their period that that dropping down energy happens, that they get tired or that they feel they can't go run that marathon or, yeah. you know, accomplish all the stuff that they want to accomplish. But there is a biological need to drop down that blood. Yeah, there's a reason for, that. for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just really honoring those things that are happening within you naturally without the external inputs. And in the process of that, you develop a greater uh, relish is the word that they use in the Ayurvedic texts, a relish for those inputs when they come back. Totally. And on that note, I think... I was just so moved by that. And I think it's such an important thing to talk about because in our society, we're so obsessed with sex and yet a lot of us are very unhappy in our sex lives. So it's this very weird, you know, anorexic obesity thing, you know, that we also have going in this country. And as I've shared on my podcast and over the summer, I was, a, my husband and I were apart for three months because I went with the girls to Tennessee. He had to work here. And I was definitely in a spiritual portal. And I, I think it also was because I was, my senses were withdrawn. And now that we're back together, it's really fun. And it's, it's great to be, you know, physical and intimate with each other in all the different ways. But there's something to celibacy that I also had throughout my 20s. The year before I was with my husband, I was celibate a full year. And I was like, I'm not having sex until I'm with my partner. And it was so empowering. And I had so much energy and was doing all this stuff and making real moves. So I also think it's just such a PowerPoint for women. And for all the single women out there, not to say, you know, no shame in whatever you're doing sexually. And if you are out there all the time and loving it, good for you. But just noticing the patterns, noticing what is the societal stuff and then what's really your own nature, I think is such a key part of it. Mm, totally. And there's also, a, I would say, a practical reason that you'd want to do a sex fast, which would be uh, one or both parties are depleted of fluids or, you know, just, or there's inflammation going Mm -hmm. on. Like there's practical, I would say, therapeutic reasons to do it as well, besides the sort of self-study piece or, you know, I view fasting as self-study. I view fasting as a spiritual technology. Uh, I believe that when a person decides to fast, there is a power that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so it, 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 you know, but the the fasting can also have a practical application as well. And for us in LA, we tend to think of fasting as juice fasting. What in Ayurveda would be a fast? I mean, I know sometimes it can be juice or broths, but what are the the kind of the tenets of that from your perspective? So there's actually two words in Sanskrit that 
a lot of people from a concept perspective, I think this helps um, understand fasting versus like cleansing versus, you know, what, what are all the different ways that you can fast and cleanse? So like you mentioned juice fasting, Ayurveda is big on doing these like kitchery cleanses, you know, a lot of people, which is a, a, a porridge of rice and- Which is delicious. Mung. Yeah, exactly. And well, some people don't like it actually. I have some clients that don't like it, but you know, and I have to come up with an alternative for them. Uh, but basically, this idea that you are um, eating something different is a, is a potential fast because you're fasting from the stuff that you're used to. But the two words in Sanskrit, there's um, shamana and shodana. So you probably know the breathing practice, Nadi Shodhana? Yeah. Okay. So Nadi Shodhana means like the cleansing of the Nadis. Shodhana means cleansing. So when we, in Ayurveda, we do like a lot of cleanses involving castor oil or different herbs that will, are more about forcefully ejecting things from the body. There's already an imbalance and some toxicities in the body. And we're going to, you know, try to squeeze them out squirt them out in some way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's the Shodana piece of it. Now there's a more sort of subtle way of doing cleansing and that's Shamana, which is more of what fasting is. Shamana is more of like palliation or like removing something rather than forcefully ejecting it. So it's like, I'm not going to go near that versus I'm going to kick that out the two different sort of approaches. So shamana, you know, fasting, and there are different kinds of fasting. Uh, you mentioned the juice fasting. Juice fasting would be definitely a kind of fasting if you're fasting from something that you're typically used to eating but or drinking. But it's also, what are you... It, drinking in the juice because juice is also used as a medicine as well. So depending on the kind of juice, like if it's the juice of parsley or if it's the juice of an herb or the juice, you know, any kind of juice would be used as, as a medicine and anything you take in is going to have an effect on you. So uh, it depends on that person. So, you know, we tend to recommend juice fasting for um, pitta clients more <laughs> yeah. than than others. Fire. Yeah. Cause it's like pittas tend to work really hard and there's a lot of inflammation, right? So it, when you have fibers going through the digestive tract, sometimes they can be scratchy and irritate. But if you have that cool juice coming through, depending on what is the juice of that, that could actually have a healing action and give a break on the muscles involved in peristalsis um, as well. So that, that would be, you know, recommended more for that. And then kitchery is just kind of used, you know, with lots of different conditions because we tend to use it as part of a, a multi-phase kind of cleanse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you recommend for most of your women trying to get pregnant, do you do fasts and cleanses or is it really, does it just start with trying to get them balanced first and then noticing what needs to be cleaned out and then going from there, going deeper? Yeah. So typically the way I work with women is like a three to six month period before they try to conceive. And that's the standard kind of process for Ayurveda. Uh, more would be better, but you know, three months minimum. And yeah, for me, I, my general process is 
uh, help them understand sort of uh, and and reset the routines and sort of kind of uh, get them on good footing mm -hmm. <laughs> and see where their imbalances are and then from the and then from there some of them will need cleansing some of them will need fasting. Some of them will need the opposite of that. Some of them will be depleted and will need to be rejuvenated and tonified and things like that instead. So it depends on what they're presenting with uh, and all toward bringing them back toward their own unique state of balance. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, so by the time they're ready con to conceive though, they're not in the middle of trying to like do a cleanse the same week that they're trying to conceive. It does take that time afterwards to rejuvenate as well. Mm. It's so important. And I mean, there's just so much to cover in this book. I love everything in this book. I cannot recommend it enough. And the other main tenet I just want to briefly talk on is the divine feminine and how we are not taught to embrace this and acknowledge and really honor it. And so many of the people that you have given examples of in your book too are, and I certainly see in my life, are the uber successful, like killing it, you know, making great money, entrepreneurial, the type A's, very driven, that look on paper like they're living the best life. And those often are the ones having the hardest time getting pregnant. And so it's really also about just allowing yourself to step more into your femininity. And that is a very loaded thing for a lot of us to deprogram ourselves. Yeah, because femininity, you know, the feminine energy is the receptive energy mm -hmm. and the masculine energy is the sort of achieving sort of hot. It was, I always think of it as it's an outward moving rather than inward receiving yeah. kind of energy. And so if you're killing it, right, like we all have at times, we've felt that what it feels like to kill it. And we feel that increase of heat in our bodies when we kill it. And uh, yeah, we say we're fired up, we're lit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally. Yeah. And when we, um, are trying to also cultivate the receptivity, and and I do think inflammation has a has a big you know piece here, and that you know that would be the fire element and a lot of pitta imbalances, and but it's not just inflammation; it's also toxicity because working hard and being lit and things like that also comes with. Uh, other behaviors that we do to um, to ground ourselves when we become burnt out, or to uh, calm ourselves when things feel like they're moving too fast, or cool ourselves down when we feel too heated up. And sometimes we can overcorrect, mm. and when we overcorrect, then we get a whole bunch of other imbalances that happen. And so, yeah, that that idea of killing it and um, being you know, super achievers is, I think a lot of women feel that it's at odds with them trying to conceive and others, it's not like that. So for me, when I, like, I actually went through a period of a lot of cleansing before I conceived my child and I had done so much cleansing and was like, okay, now I'm teaching yoga instead of having that corporate job or whatever, that things actually got too cooled down for me and too slow. And I actually, right before I conceived, I like signed up for a business coaching program and I got a little more of my fire on because it was low. Mm. And so, um, I, but most of the people that 
I work with are kind of a um, more in that hot category. Mm-hmm. And again, coming back to it's so nuanced. This is a nuanced science. And so it really is personal. And I know for myself, because I was trying to diagnose myself, you know, and all the quizzes, which I actually love your quiz, by the way. But I do want to stress for people that are working on a real issue or really diving into their fertility, work with a practitioner that has studied this, that is skilled and knowledgeable, and then learn your own self-care from that because it is so specific when you really want to go in and heal deeply. Yeah. My friend, I was walking with a friend who just had a baby, you know, just like a six month old. And we were walking around with our masks on yesterday in San Francisco. And she was listening to uh, a talk I had with another Ayurvedic practitioner online. And she was like, I have a really hard time, you know, with this idea that all imbalances are just, or that we all just are like these three types. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, yeah, that is the sort of pop culture perception of Ayurveda that I think we all kind of start with. Mm -hmm. And then we and I think you have to start with it really simple. And even in my book, you know, I had to figure out how do I write about it in a way that a beginner could understand it because yeah. it is more complicated. And I mentioned that in the book, but you have to be able to understand uh, some basic things in the beginning. Um, and then it, it'll just keep going deeper and deeper. And it's, it's like a, a beautiful rabbit hole to go into that then all of a sudden doesn't become a rabbit hole, becomes this like broad, wide field of how you see the world. Mm -hmm. And a lifestyle. It truly is a lifestyle. Yeah, totally. It's helped me so much in my own life. And I just think it's a great gift. And I really thank India. And I I know that we're going to butcher it um, in a lot of ways, the way we implement it here in the U.S., like we did with yoga. (laughs) But that's life. And that's how when things cross cultures... Uh, they, you know, when, when a fluid in your body changes, like when it, tra- it crosses a membrane, it always changes its property on the other side of that membrane. So like, you know, blood, when it goes through, it'll be different on the other side, it'll be oxygenated or deoxygenated or, you know, so when that fluid moves through and crosses a membrane or a border, if you will, it's always different on the other side. And I think that's, you know, that's how Ayurveda will end up too. And that's how yoga turned out, but it's helping us. It's, it really is helping us. Wow. That's such a powerful image of life right now because <laughs> we are in such a pivotal moment of change. Is there anything you'd like to close with if to speaking to women that might be dealing with fertility issues or women in general? Yeah. And I think it goes back to where you started today, which is the quote to my son and how he came to me in a sleeping dream and turned my life into a waking dream. And this journey is all about being surprised and whether it's the fertility journey or whether it's being a mother or just being a human, uh, one of the beautiful things even that comes out of the pandemic is having your paradigm rocked. You know, I think we all see the, the beauty that comes with it as well as all the frustrations and fears and things like that. But there's also these unexpected gifts that we get. And if we get into a state of mind in which we only want this one thing it has to be like this. We are really setting ourselves up for a lot of 
challenge and disappointment. Not to say that we can't, um, you know, like I said in the book, control what you can control. You can control, you're the only person who feeds your body. You know, you could, maybe you can't control some things about where you get your food from and stuff like that, but you, you have a lot to say in how your body functions and the rest of the stuff you just have to like be surprised about. And going back to that dream, when I saw my son in a dream, he had blonde hair. And if you look at me, you would probably be like, there's no way she'd have a blonde kid because I'm dark, you know, I'm not like super, I'm olive and I have, you know, dark, dark hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I saw him in that dream, I just was like, that's not my kid. I'm not gonna have a blonde kid. I just didn't even think anything of it. And then I have this baby and I'm sitting in, you know, post, you know, just had my kid and these, they put him on my chest and I'm like, he's blonde. <laughs> oh my God, that was the one, wow. you know? So it's just really allow yourself to be surprised and it's not all going to make sense. And that's actually exciting. Mm -hmm. That's what life is, right? Is being up for the ride. Yeah. I mean, that, that, like we're all looking for the Zen mind, you know, the Zen mind is the beginner's mind and the Zen, that word Zen is the same as the Sanskrit word Dhyan, you know, that part, that phase of meditation. And I think in Chinese it's Chan. So it's like that ability to just see something fresh. And when we expect things, we don't see it fresh. We've already been trying to draw conclusions about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think similar, but kind of reverse of what you just shared is my first one had tiny chicken blonde hair. My second baby came out with a ton of dark hair, black hair. They're both blonde now, but the first thing I said, I was like, she's so dark, you know, cause it was shocking to me. I was like, how am I having a baby with black hair? This is nuts. Yeah. One thing I wanted to end on, which is something I talk a lot about to my mamas and my clients is you know, seeing ourselves, our bodies, our minds, this experience in this life as one continuum, because I think in our society, we get so broken up as like teenager in your twenties, totally, you know, virile and young and hip and blah, blah, blah. And then thirties is like your career. And then forties is babies or thirties and forties are babies. And then premenopause and then menopause. Like we just, we are so labeled and broken up. And one thing I just loved about your acknowledgements, your last line is you say, my former lovers for all the practice. And I think that's such a beautiful note because it's like all of your experiences make us who we are and no shame or judgment. It's, it's part of this beautiful journey. And then we're on to the next thing, right? And so I just think that's really important for anyone listening who's single, and having a baby seems so far out there or having a partner feels so far out there. Or getting yeah. divorced, right? Yeah, or getting divorced or in that new chapter or yeah, or outgrowing a relationship or transitional relationship, all of it. You know, it all is relevant and it all matters and it's all beautiful and messy. So thank you for that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, thank you so much. It was such a privilege and honor to sit down with you. Thank you for making the time. And it's just really great to connect with you. Yes. Thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Me too. And I look forward to seeing you if and when you're back down in LA. And I'll have all the, all the things about you in the show notes so people can reach out to you and find your book. 
Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, Jayma. 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 Jayma.